Thank you guys so much. We're going to continue the story of God. We're out of Genesis. Exodus chapter 12 is where we're going to camp for a little bit, but I want to give us some context. I want to give us some context. So Al took us last week through the story of Joseph and how Joseph went to Egypt, so the Jews went to Egypt, and so uh, it was really a miraculous story of how Joseph got to Egypt, and man, God's sovereignty was working all the way through it. So then they get to Egypt, and Exodus chapter 1 picks up a pretty interesting way. If you trace, you know, Al talked about, Al t- Al talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see that kind of three-name piece put together a lot, right? It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you go look at those covenants and you go look at what God's calling them to do, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, when God's first commandment to man, he said, have dominion over the earth, be fruitful and multiply. And you see that phrase, that be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. And then after Noah with Abraham, God kind of stopped saying, hey, you be fruitful and multiply. And he says, I will make you fruitful and I will multiply your offspring. You won't even be able to count them just like sand on a beach. You can't count them. Well, if you look at Exodus chapter 1, this is pretty cool. Look at Exodus 1, 7. So they go to Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. It's pretty cool, right? You kind of see the beginnings of the fruition of what God had promised in the book of Genesis. And what happens from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus is about 400 years of slavery. If you go see God talking to Abraham, he's actually telling them that this is going to happen. Hey, your people are going to be enslaved for 400 years, but I got it. Okay, don't worry. I've got it. So they get to Egypt, 400 years, over those 400 years, they're fruitful, they multiply, there's tons of people, the land's filled with them. But there's a new king that arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's what verse 8 says in Exodus chapter 1. Joseph had favor in the land of Egypt because he had interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh, Pharaoh knew him, and he oversaw, man, the whole land. Then this new king rose up and he's going, man, who are these people? Why did we let them get, they're not a part of Egypt. And then this new Pharaoh in Exodus 1 actually gets super insecure, super fearful of, he starts to go, wait a second, there's way more of them than us. If they wanted, they could probably overthrow us. So his natural response is, let's enslave them. And he actually says, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. So he commands, hey, let's do away with all the firstborn. If there's a firstborn Son, I want you to kill him immediately. But the midwives who were helping give birth, they were Hebrews, they were Jews. So if you see Jew, Hebrew, Israelite, that's all talking about the same group of people. So these midwives are like, mm, no, let's not do that. So they, they let them all stay alive, and Pharaoh's like really upset with them. They're like, they give birth too quick, we can't get there in time, right? Pretty convenient, uh, pretty convenient excuse. And then praise God for their faithfulness to stand up to him. And there's a whole sermon you could probably preach in that their faithfulness. So the moral of, of this story, of where we are in Exodus, is that God's people went to Egypt, they multiplied, there's tons of them, and then they're enslaved. They're enslaved in Egypt, in a land that, it's not the land God promised Abraham. They're not under a good ruler, they're enslaved. So what about the covenant? 
What about the promise God made? Where is it? What hope is there? In Exodus chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, read this with me. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So God remembers his covenant, his covenant to bring them into the promised land to give them many descendants to eventually bless the entire world through them. God remembers this covenant. But in order to fulfill this covenant, he would have to bring his people out of Egypt. He'd have to bring them out of slavery. So God raised up Moses. Now Moses is kind of an unlikely person to lead them out of Egypt, right? He's actually Jewish, When he was born, his mom hid him for a while and raised him for a few months. But she was hiding him, remember, because Pharaoh said, hey, all the firstborn have to die. So his mom hides him, and then his mom puts him literally in a basket. I have a a picture of a movie that I watched when I was a kid. I'm sure I saw it in church somewhere of of this happening. So she, she puts him in this basket, sends him down the river, right? And who finds him but Pharaoh's own daughter? So Immediately, you see the sovereignty of God working in this story. What are the chances that this Jewish boy, this Israelite, would be raised, not even as an Egyptian, but in Pharaoh's own house? So then Moses is Jewish, raised in Egypt's leader in Pharaoh's house. And then he gets to this point where he kind of has this identity crisis, where he goes, I'm Jewish, but I'm Egyptian, and... Whose side am I on? So then he one day sees two Israelites fighting. He breaks it up and he actually ends up killing one of them. And they kind of look at him in disgrace. They're kind of like, who made you ruler and judge over us? Like, you think you're better. You're, you're one of us, but you think you're better because you're raised in Pharaoh's house. And there's all, he just leaves. So Moses just leaves Egypt and he flees out because he feels like he doesn't have a home. Who, who is he? Is he Jewish? Is he Egyptian? He he doesn't have a home in either one. Pharaoh actually wants to kill him at one point because of what he's done. So then here we are in Exodus 2. God says, man, I remember the covenant. And then you get to chapter 3. And God shows up to Moses in a burning bush. And this text is so fascinating because Moses offers question after question to God. God shows up and says, Moses, this is holy ground, take your shoes off. They have this conversation where God's calling Moses. He's saying, I'm going to use you to free my people. And Moses just has question after question about like, you got the wrong guy. Let the next person walk up to the bush and maybe try to call him, but no way is it me. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God says, I will be with you. And then Moses goes, okay, you'll be with me. Well, when I go to the, my people, when I go to the Israelites, Who in the world am I going to tell them even sent me? Who are you? What's your name? God says, I am who I am. The eternally existing God sent you. So Moses is like, okay, but what in the world am I going to do when I'm in the presence of Pharaoh? How is this going to work? How is he going to believe me? How are the people? He has question after question after question. And then he goes, I stutter. I can't even talk good. How, you're sending me to talk. I, I can't even do that. Over and over, you see Moses' weakness, and you see God saying, stop, I'm able, so just relax. Okay, we're going to get there. And that's what you see in this first part of Exodus, because as we get to the plagues, 
we see God exerting his power over Egypt. We see God undoing the order of creation. He's causing chaos to come down on the nation of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 through 23, this is what God says, and this kind of sets up where we're going this morning. God tells Moses, he says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Pharaoh had no respect for God. When Moses goes to Pharaoh, here's Pharaoh's response. Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So God's plan, one of the repeated phrases throughout this entire text, is God saying, so that you may know that I am the Lord. That's a theme here. God is making himself known. He's answering Pharaoh's question, right? Pharaoh says it. Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? God proceeds to answer. He is God Almighty, Lord over everything. So you, we could go through and we could spend way more time than we are this morning flying through the plagues and God exerts his authority. He shows who he is that Pharaoh should obey him. So the first nine plagues, as awful as they were, just resulted in Pharaoh actually only wanting relief from the plagues, but he never sends the Israelites out. So there would be a plague. Pharaoh would go, Moses, make it stop. You guys can go. It would stop and Pharaoh would say, you guys aren't going anywhere. Over and over, this is happening. And God's saying, okay, Moses, go do this so that they will know that I am the Lord. And then the process would just repeat and repeat and repeat. So the first nine plagues are horrible, but Pharaoh doesn't actually let them go. And remember, God's plan is to fulfill his covenant. So he's got to get them out of Egypt. So here we are, Exodus chapter 12, the 10th plague. That's where we pick up this morning. And this 10th plague is actually about God keeping his promise from Exodus 4, 22 through 23. Remember, it says, God is saying, Israel is my firstborn son. If you don't let them go, I will kill your firstborn son. So that's the promise he makes. If you don't let them go. Nine times the opportunity to let them go doesn't let them go. So here we are, the 10th plague. In Exodus 11, chapter 4, Moses says, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn son in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So Moses is telling this to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't want to listen, so Moses leaves. And it says he's in hot anger. He's really angry that Pharaoh's not listening. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Comma, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. There God goes again. His mission in this is to make himself known, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of Pharaoh not listening and disobeying, God is saying, all this is for one purpose, that my wonders will be known. Because the harder it is for me to save you out of Egypt, the more powerful I will look. So he's not 
listening. Okay, Moses, don't fret. I'm coming, and it's going to make me look awesome, and that's the best thing about this whole story. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to their number of persons, according to what each one can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they'll take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13 of Exodus 12. The blood that they put on the doorposts shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God gives extremely specific instructions to his people. There's a problem with this plague for the people of Israel. All the other ones, God's been able beforehand when he sends the plague to just distinguish, right? When things die or when the frogs come or the locusts come, God has just made it come on the Egyptians and not his people Israel. But in this one, there's a difference. The first nine plagues were done by a mediator. Moses would go do something and the plague would happen. But this one, notice what he says in chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. I will go out in the midst of Egypt. God is done with the mediators. God himself is coming down. The presence of God is going to go through the land of Egypt. That's a problem even for God's people, even though he loves them and knows them. The fact is, no one can stand in the presence of God without facing his judgment. So God's presence is coming through. What in the world will the people of Israel do? And he gives them extremely specific instructions. They're to take a lamb, a young male, a young male lamb who's only one year old and he's spotless. Then they're to kill him. Then they're going to take some of the blood and they put it on the doorpost. Then they're to cook it in a very particular way, not raw or boiled, but only roasted. And then they can't leave any meat left over. They've got to make sure they do their proportions right and have just enough meat for everyone they're going to be cooking for. If your house is too small, partner up with some neighbors and let's get the right amount of meat. Then they're to eat it and be ready while they're eating to leave the country as fast as possible. They're eat it with their belts on, their sandals strapped, their bags packed, ready to go. He says, eat it in haste. And this is kind of foreshadowing what happens in the story where they've got to eat it because as soon as it's done, they're eating it. 
the Lord passes over. The great cry goes out from Egypt because the firstborn has died. And Pharaoh says, get out now. So they've got to be ready to go. But notice what's happening in this story. There, as their bags are packed, they're ready to leave this place. Their people have lived for 400 years. I mean, put that in perspective. America's not even really been around as a country that long. That's a really long time. 400 years the Jews have lived in Egypt. All of a sudden, they're packing their bags. I mean, they've been established in this nation. Now they're packing their bags ready to leave to signal a new beginning. We're moving to a new place. A new beginning is coming. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, you also see the sign of a new beginning. He says, this shall be for you the first month. This is going to mark the beginning of time for you. What I'm about to do, you're going to celebrate this every single year. It's going to mark the beginning of the year for you. But we got to step back for a moment and situate this in the story. God's telling them to do all this, to make all these preparations before he's actually passing over. If you go back and you read Exodus chapter 6, God actually promises their deliverance. He says, I'm going to deliver, I'm going to bring you out to me. And I'm going to show that I'm strong and that I'm mighty and you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Exodus 6, 9, Moses spoke these things to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. In Exodus 6, you have God making this promise, I'm going to deliver you. They said, there's no way. This slavery is too harsh. Our spirits are broken. They'd become cynical. Right? You have this revelation from God, and they're going, No. There's no way it could be better than this. We're so bad off, no one can rescue us. Six chapters later in Exodus 12, God's speaking to them and he's saying, you better prepare because I'm coming. God's word in Exodus chapter 12 demands their faith because he hadn't done it yet. He hadn't passed over yet, but he says, I'm going to on this night. So all these preparations... What do you think the conversation was like? Households are getting together and they're trying to figure out how much are you going to eat and you've got four kids under the age of seven so who knows how much they're going to eat? How are they going to feel for dinner? I don't know. You can't guess that. But you're trying to and you're trying to get all together. Do you think anybody ever just went, hold on, is he really coming? I mean, how long has he been saying he's going to rescue us? Now he's trying to tell us, this God who's going to rescue, he's trying to tell us how to cook our lambs. He's trying to tell us how to eat it. Not only how to eat it, he's telling us to take the blood and put it on our door. Imagine how foolish we're going to look if he doesn't come and the Egyptians walk by. We've all got blood on our doorposts. We're going to have to walk in and out of that house every day looking at the blood, being reminded that we did something and he didn't even do anything for us. I mean, let's put ourselves in their shoes. The, The text isn't telling us this, but we can read And see that in chapter 6, they had no faith. And in chapter 12, God's telling them again, I need you to act in faith. I need you to believe me. Here's the beauty. Here's the lesson for faith in Exodus chapter 6. Imagine two heads of households. Imagine two households, and one of them's going, there is no way this is going to happen. 
There's no way. And the other guy's going, I don't know, man. Have you seen the other nine plagues? Like, I think he's really working for us. Like, I think he's getting ready to save us. And the other guy goes, okay, nine plagues in 400 years. And they're going back and forth. And one guy's going, no, I mean, it's going to happen. And the other guy's going, no way. And then they both leave and they both kill the lamb and they both put the blood over their door. Who does God save? Both. (laughs) He saves both because it doesn't matter how strong your faith is. That's not what saves you. What saved them was the blood on the doorpost. Whether you didn't really believe and you were skeptical and you were cynical and you were thinking there's no way or whether you were excited and you were up early and you were looking at your lamps and you're going, I don't, is that one more perfect? Is that, I don't know. And you were trying to really wrestle and you were so excited that God was going to do this. Both people were saved, not because of how much they believed, but because there was blood on their doorpost. The strength of our faith is not what saves us. The object of our faith is what saves us. That's good news for all of us. Because if you're like me, my faith is weak. My faith is very weak. But God made a way to save us that did not require us to be strong in any way. He made a way to save us even for the weakest people who don't even have the strength to be dependent in faith. Salvation is not based on the strength of our faith. It is based on the object of our faith. So in this case, the object of their faith was the blood of the lamb. In our case, the object of our faith Don't miss this. The object of our faith is in the blood of a better lamb. The lamb of God. Christ is our Passover lamb. When God sees the blood of Christ on the doorposts of our hearts, death is not our end. When he sees the blood of Christ applied to us, Sin does not rule the day condemning us. When God sees the blood, he no longer just passes over. He welcomes us home. The object of our faith, just like these believers in Exodus 12, the object of our faith is in the better lamb, Jesus Christ, slain once for all, never to die again. And his blood is what justifies us in the eyes of God. Read with me from Isaiah 53, verses four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Five times in this passage, there is a reference to the fact that he will take on our griefs, sorrows, transgressions, and iniquities. There's two things we need to learn about the lamb. 
the fact that Christ is our Passover lamb, we need to learn a couple things. One is that he's our substitute. He took our place. When you're reading the story in Exodus, when you get closer to the end of chapter 12, in verse 30, it says, Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. Catch this next phrase. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. To say it differently, every house had someone dead. Every house had someone dead. The question was, was it the firstborn or was it the lamb? The lamb was the substitute for the firstborn. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is mine and is your substitute. What that means is that he took the place we should have been. That's what Isaiah 53 is saying. We had griefs and he took them. We had sorrows and he took them. We had transgressions, he took them and was pierced for them. We had iniquities he received the crushing blow that we should have received for those iniquities. We deserved chastisement, but he took it on. We deserved the wounds that he took. We had great iniquity, but the Lord laid it on him. So our hope for salvation could be summed up in one simple phrase. Jesus in my place. What a beautiful message that we believe in. Jesus in my place. He's our substitute. He's our perfect, spotless, no blemish substitute in the eyes of God. And when we look all the way back in Exodus chapter 12, we see even there our need for a substitute on our behalf because we cannot save ourselves. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin, what we deserve because of sin, is death. Sin leads to death because sin is separation from God and God is the source of life. Romans 3.20 tells us that no human being can be justified by the works of the law. We cannot be made right with God because of our own works. So we deserve death because we're separated from God. We in ourselves can do nothing to get back to God. But two verses later in Romans 3, in verse 23, we see that every single person to ever walk the face of the planet has sinned. But God does not leave it there. God does not leave us as separated from him with no possibility of getting right with him. And this spans to every person on the face of the planet. God doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave us as standing before him as a sinner, a rebel, deserving death. Our only hope is that someone will take the punishment we deserve. That's the good news of the gospel. Not that we could do something to change God's opinion of us. What is it that you tend to drift towards? that you think in God's eyes will make you look better. What is it if you stood in the presence of God today that you would point to? 
What is the ground, the foundation of why you think you're right with God? What is your hope beyond death? What is your faith in that you think will save you? If it's not Jesus, then you don't have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your heart. If it's not Jesus, then you still deserve death in the eyes of God. And the most loving thing that we can do is to wrestle with that before you take another step in your life. If there is anything that you think can save you, can help you, can aid you in the eyes of God, if there is anything, then I beg and implore you this morning, turn from that, put your hope in Jesus and realize that only he can save. In some ways, isn't this the ground of what we prayed for earlier for God's global mission? The reason we believe and are passionate about God's global mission is because of what we're talking about this morning. Because the blood of the lamb is the only way. It's not one of many ways. It's not the best way. It's the only way. And we believe that if someone has not put their faith in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, as their only hope for salvation, then they will spend eternity apart from him, apart from the creator of the universe that we find our joy in, that we were created to know and to love and be in relationship with. And so that fuels us to go live on mission to tell people, if you're putting your faith in anything else, you will be sorely disappointed and spend eternity receiving God's wrath against you. That's how horrible sin is, but that's how beautiful the gospel is, is that God's not telling you to work to get it. He's saying, Jesus did it. So whatever faith you have, put it in him. If it's faith enough to run and leap in his arms and hug him because you're excited to believe, then run and leap. But if it's faith faith where you can do nothing else but fall towards him, fall. Fall. Faith is not about the strength of it that you have. It's about the object. We've seen that we have no hope in the eyes of God, but enter Jesus. He lived the life we couldn't live. In other words, he was the spotless lamb, no blemish. He lived the perfect life we could not have lived. Then he died the death we should have died. Substitute. He went in our place. We're up here, right? Live the hor- we're sinners in God's eyes. We deserve to die and be separated from him. And Jesus says, hey, I'm perfect, spotless, no blemishes. Let me go in your place. So he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died so that we could be raised to life with him. Jesus had to die for us to be saved, okay? Jesus had to die because he could not stay dead. Have you read Acts 2 in the Peter's sermon, the first one preached after Jesus is gone? And he says, the pangs of death, the throes of death couldn't hold him for it was impossible 
It was impossible for death to hold Jesus. Why? He's the only person that ever lived that didn't deserve it. That's the beauty of the perfect substitute on our behalf. When we die, we deserve to die. We deserve to be separated from God. But when Jesus dies, he doesn't stay dead because he never deserved it in the first place. So then he's raised to life. He is raised to life. The rest of Exodus 12 actually goes back and forth between telling them instructions on what to do, how to prepare for the Passover, but then it goes to instructions on how do you celebrate this on a regular basis. This is so important that in the middle, before God's even done this, he's going back and forth going, hey, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to cook it like this, put the blood here. And then every year when your kids are asking you about it, you're going to be celebrating it. Here's how you do it every year. Right? It's like, hey, couldn't this wait until we're out? Like, let's get us out and then give us these instructions. But it's so important that God is saying, here's how you celebrate this festival, this feast, every single year. So we need, we put our faith in the Lamb of God, but then we remember the work of the Lamb regularly. This morning, we're going to partake of the Lord's table. This is our way of remembering the work of the Lamb. Look with me in Matthew 26, 26 through 29. Jesus is eating the Passover with his disciples, and here's what's said. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. So they're in the middle of the feast of Passover. I mean, they're in this, and they're going through the ritual, and Jesus stops at the bread, and he says, this is my body. This represents my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So previously, God passed over sins. He saw the blood of the animal lamb, and he passed over. But now God doesn't pass over anymore. He previously passed over the firstborn of Israel, but now God does not pass over his own firstborn son. He pours out his wrath on him in the person of Jesus. Jesus' body is broken. His blood is shed for our salvation. In him, we have the only way of salvation. We find hope in the face of God's presence because of a weak, innocent lamb, Jesus and we remember this work of the Lamb by remembering Matthew 26 and Luke 22, which we call the Lord's Supper because he's celebrating Passover and then he makes it even more meaningful and he says, no, no, wait. The bread's about my body. It's not about this animal that died. It's about me who will die. And this wine that you're gonna drink, it's not about the blood that they wiped in Egypt. It's about my blood that's gonna shed for you that will wipe away your sins. So we remember the work of the lamb and we look back at what Jesus has accomplished. But Jesus says something interesting at the end. He talks about, I'm not gonna drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. What is he talking about? When we remember the work of the lamb, we look in two directions. We look back at what Jesus has accomplished and we look ahead at what he will accomplish. In Revelation 19, six through nine, listen to what the angel who's speaking, John is speaking the angel showing him around heaven. He's getting this incredible vision of what is this going to look like when all is said and done. And this is what John says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. 
like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We take this feast regularly. Our pattern is we try to do it the first Sunday of every month. It's the first Sunday of October, so we're going to take the Lord's table. But we, when we take the Lord's table, we look back at the perfect substitutionary sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And we rejoice that there's nothing we could do to save ourselves, that God put this perfect Lamb forth in our place. And it's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. We look back and we rejoice. But we look ahead to Revelation 19. And we look forward to the day that when everything is over, when time has ended, when God has put everything right, we will be united to Jesus in the flesh, in person, never to be separated again. No more tears, no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering. And we'll feast with the Lamb. We will feast with the Lamb. Now we feast in remembrance of what He's done and we feast in hope of what he will finish one day. The end of time will be celebrated with a feast that marks the eternal union of Christ the Lamb and his people.